It's always an honor to be asked back. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you turn to Psalm 15, please? This is the uh, text that's been assigned to us this morning. Psalm 15. Some of you may know the name of Martin Pearl. Uh, Pearl is a Stanford University uh, professor and uh, researcher, uh, a physicist who was awarded the, um, the Nobel Prize in 1995 for discovering some little subatomic particle on the uh, linear accelerator there in, in Stanford. Uh, he's known for having a very inquiring mind, and the Stanford Daily interviewed him shortly after he received uh, the Nobel Prize. And uh, he was asked to what he attributed his, uh, his inquiring mind. He says, well, I'll tell you, he said, whenever I, when I was a child, whenever I came home from, from school, my mother would all, always say, so Marty, did you ask any good questions today? Now, that's a good mother. And that's a good question, because we all need to learn to ask good questions, the right sort of questions. And here in Psalm 15, in the passage we want to look at this morning, David asked precisely uh, the right question. Uh, let me read it to you. I'm going to make a commentary, uh, a comment or two on it as we uh, move through the, uh, this, this little brief psalm, and then we'll come back to it in some detail. First reading, it seems like a uh, very unremarkable little psalm. But it has uh, some profound depths. Lord, who may dwell in your tent? Uh, that's the precise uh, uh, wording of David's first line of the poem. Some translations say sanctuary, but it's just the word for a common tent, which was, of course, the, uh, the dwelling place of the ark until they built the tabernacle. <clears throat> Lord, who may dwell in your tent, who may live on your holy hill? He who walks in integrity, he who does what is right, he who speaks the truth in his heart. He does not gossip. Uh, literally, the text says he does not walk around with his tongue. Interesting figure, like a spy walks around behind your back, digs up dirt. He does not wrong his neighbor. He does not... Listen to gossip. Some of, the, some of the translations say, take up a reproach, but the intent, David's intent is to say, this person doesn't listen to those who gossip. Uh, he takes vile men lightly, but honors those who fear the Lord. He keeps his oath. He keeps his word, even when it hurts. He lends his money without, without usury. Uh, there, there are two words for usury in the Old Testament, for interest, actually, in the Old Testament. This is a word that literally means to bite. It's talking about exorbitant interest. doesn't use people in order to profit. He does not accept a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Uh, the structure of this little poem is very simple. The first verse is David's question, which he asks of God. And the verses that follow, 2 through 15, are God's answer. Now, it, most writers are agreed that, that David penned this psalm shortly after he brought the ark up from the house of Obed-Edom uh, Obed up to Zion, the, the, the little windswept mountain where the, the tent stood for a number of years until Solomon built the uh, temple. 
Uh, David's first act after he was crowned king at Hebron over all Israel was to gather his cabinet, and he said to them, the first thing we must do is to go down to Kirith-Jerim, the city of trees, the, uh, the house of Obed-Edom, and bring the ark back up to Zion. Now, there's something very significant about that statement. In fact, that statement defines David. Uh, Saul let the ark rot for 40 years while he was king because he was a secular man. He had no interest in spiritual things, no interest in God. The first thing that David wanted to do is to bring this little box that symbolized the presence of God up to Zion to put God in the center of his life, in the center of his king, kingdom, in the center of his rule. Now, anyone knows who's uh, seen Steven Spielberg's uh, version of the Ark, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, knows that the Ark was nothing more than a, a little box about the size of a footlocker. It was covered with gold, had a couple of cherubs on top that represented the presence of God. Everyone knew that God did not dwell in that box. And there was no magic in that box, despite uh, Steven Spielberg's version of it. It was just a box that symbolized the presence of God. It's very, very significant that David's first thought was in God we trust. I was really gratified to see our, our current president, George W. Bush, as his first act after inauguration go to a prayer meeting. Because I think not only is that a significant event, it's a symbolic action because he wanted to bring God back into government. And that, that's what David wanted. More than anything else, he wanted God in the center of, of his life. And may I, may I say that aging and suffering brings you to that same conclusion that there's really nothing in this life worth having except God. Because everything else disappoints. Everything else is unsatisfying. Well, there are little serendipities in life, happy occasions. But by and large, the only thing that, that lasts, the only, well, not by and large, the only thing that lasts and the only thing that satisfies is God himself. Paul says he had come to the point where he looked at Jesus Christ as the one around whom all things consist. He uses a word really that means to, to coalesce. Everything centers around Jesus. Everything springs from Jesus. Everything is related to him. All of life is integrated around, around Jesus. Uh, one, of, one of the psalmists in Psalm 73 is musing over the, the unfairness of life and those who seem to have no room for God in their life, no time for Him, or they're fat, dumb, happy, healthy, they have everything going for them, and He's crying the blues, he, everything's gone wrong in His life. They have the good life, they don't have God, He has God, He doesn't have the good life. And finally, He comes to a sense and He says, oh, I'd forgotten their end. This isn't all there is. And then He, he, he says, I'm always, He reminds Himself, I'm always with you. He's talking to God, I'm always with you. You hold me. By my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me to glory. It's one of those uh, wonderful Old Testament intimations of a resurrection. Afterward, you'll take me to glory. Whom have I but you? Oh, I have a family, I have a wife, I have all sorts, but, but who ha whom have I ultimately but you? The earth, the earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die one of these days. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, he says, the good life is being near God. <laughs> I may not have wealth. I may not have 
influence. I may not have power. I may not have ease, but I have God. And that's all that matters. And that was David's point of view. He wanted God to be in the very center of his life. And, and as I said, aging and suffering teaches you that. After a while, the only thing worth having is God himself. Now, it, David asked this question, who, who? Now, I, I want to say a word about the question, and then I want to say about a word about the structure of, this, of, of, of the first couple of verses. And then I want to say a word about the theology of that verse, verse 1. <clears throat> First, a word about the question. There are two ways to say who in Hebrew. One is to anticipate a name. Who did this? George, Sam, Charlie, Mary, Sue. Another is to ask what sort of person. It's that interrogative. What sort of person dwells with God? The second thing I want to talk about is the structure of these verses because you'll notice there are two lines that's characteristic of Hebrew, Semitic, ancient Near Eastern poetry. They write their poetry that way. We like to rhyme words. We use assonance. Mary had a little lamb. Her father shot it dead. Now Mary takes the lamb to school between two hunks of bread. We like that, you know. <laughs> dead, bread. So. We like those rhyming sounds. Hebrews rhymed ideas. And, and there's good psychology in that because you... You make a statement and then you trace another neural pattern through the brain by saying the same thing again. But scholars have determined that the second line almost always enhances in some way the first line. It adds something to it. And if you look at this, at this verse carefully, he says, Who may dwell in your tent? Who may live in your holy hill? He could have just said, Who may live on your hill? That would be good parallelism. But the fact that he introduces the idea of holiness here indicates we're talking about a place where a holy God dwells. So the question then becomes, what sort of people dwell with holiness? Or, or to put it colloquially, you know, in just straight language, who hangs with God? What kind of people are fit to live with Him? Now the third thing I want to uh, talk about is the theology of this section. Because I do not want to leave the impression that David is saying, you clean up your act you have a little more spit and polish. You gussy yourself up a little bit, and then God will let you in, your, in his tent. That's not what he's saying. It's bad theology. There's this idea that the Old Testament is all about law and works, and you, know, you have to be good, and then God will accept you. And the New Testament is all about grace. But grace begins in the very first, very first verse of Genesis. See, when Paul sets out to establish that we are justified, declared righteous by faith. He does not go to Peter or James or Matthew or any of the New Testament writers. He goes all the way back to Genesis, to the story of Abraham. And he says, do you want to know how people are saved? Look at Abraham. And what happened was that God told Abraham, you're going to have a child. His body, this Bible puts it so quaintly, his body was as good as dead. He couldn't have a child. God takes him out under the stars. He says, can you count the stars? Abraham says, no. God says, you're going to have more children than there are stars in the heavens. And it says, Abraham believed God. And you have this little footnote. God reckoned Abraham righteous by faith. And that's the passage that Paul quotes in Galatians and Romans when he wants to establish that salvation is by faith. That's in the Old Testament. Now, here's what, here, you know, it's a wonderful picture. 
I love symbols. I love metaphors because that's the way our minds are made. Our minds are not, they're not lecture halls. They're like picture galleries. Pictures stick to the walls of our mind. So it's a wonderful picture of climbing up this hill. Here's the tent where God lives. And we come knocking on the door of God's tent and he says, come on in. I don't care if you got mud on your feet. We'll clean up the mess afterward. We'll clean you up afterward. You just come on in. You see, we, you know, we, in our confusion, we say we come to the tent, you know, we scrape our feet off, get the mud off, clean ourselves up, and then God will let us into his tent. That's absolutely bad theology. God says, come on in. Come on in. We'll go to work on you after. Because you'll begin to want to be like me. That's what happens to a son. He begins to want to be like a father if his father is a good father. And I'll give you the power to be. And your life will begin to change. Now that's what David is saying. That when you live with God, when you hang with God, when you dwell with Him, you will become this sort of person. Now what sort of person is that? Well, uh, it's a person who has integrity. Verse 2. What sort of people have been spending time with God? Well, they have integrity, he says. By the way, all these verbs in here are participles. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's not a once-for-all thing. It's, it's not either-or thing. You know, it's, it's, it's a pattern of life. The people who, who spend time with God have integrity. They walk in integrity, and they, they do the right thing, and they speak the truth in their heart. The word he uses for integrity is literally the word whole. It's the same word that God uses when he addresses Abraham and he says, you walk with me and you will become whole. Uh, and, it's a, and integrity is a good translation because our word integrity means whole. Our word integrity comes from the same Latin root that the word integer comes from. And an integer, you know, is a, is a whole number. A person of integrity, like a whole number, is a whole person undivided of a piece. Now, the parallelism again, going back to the structure of these verses, you have three lines. He walks in integrity, does what's right, and he thinks what's right. The second and third lines actually define what integrity is. A person of integrity does what is right, and they think along the right lines. They think the right things. Now, this assumes that there's a right thing to think about. In other words, there is a moral base, a hard core of non-negotiable norms and virtues around which life can be integrated. Now, that's up for grabs in our culture today. Because the only rule is that there are no rules. And so you can do whatever. You make up your own rules as you go along. It's postmodern thought. I'm not telling you anything new. That's the world we, we live in. But David's statement uh, uh, necessitates a hard core of truth, something to think about that is right. It is righteous. And God's Word informs that core. Schaefer says, God's Word, and for us as Christians, the New Testament is true truth. God has told us what to love, and He's told us what to hate. We don't have to go out discovering a moral base. It's been disclosed. If you want to know what's right and wrong, read the New Testament. That's where you'll get your information. Uh, John, the, the, the apostle who also wrote 
the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and his little epistle of 2nd John, which he wrote because false teachers were coming into the church and misleading people, says this, Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now, what does he mean, run ahead? What he's saying is that Christianity is not avant-garde. We're not progressing in our knowledge of God. It's already been revealed. You want to know what God is like? You don't go out under an open sky and try to find Him or discover Him. You go back to what Jesus said. We don't go on, He says. We're not avant-garde. We're conservative. We're traditionalists. We go back to the ideas that Jesus taught, and that becomes our moral base. Those are foundational. It's bedrock stuff. That's the truth around which we integrate our lives. We, we don't have to wonder what's right and what's wrong. God has already told us. We go back, go back. We don't go on, we go back. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, have seen uh, uh, River Runs Through It, or at least Robert Redford's version of it. <clears throat> you should read the book. If you haven't read Norman McLean's uh, book, please go back and read it. Because Robert Redford, bless his soul, introduced a lot of New Age th thinking into that, uh, into that movie that, that really reflect badly on the book. So re read the book. Remember that one scene, though, where uh, Norman is sitting next to his father and Paul's out there fishing? That's when he gets caught in the, in the river and, and uh, carried downstream. And they're talking. His father has a book in his hand. Well, what Redford doesn't tell us is that the book was the Greek New Testament. And uh, McLean says, uh, this is the book. He says to his father, who, as you know, was a Presbyterian minister. He says, what are you reading? He says, a book. Um, it was on the ground on the other side of him, so I wouldn't have to bother to look over his knees to see it. He said, it's, it's a good book. Then he told me, in the part I was reading, it says, the Word was in the beginning, and that's right. I used to think the water was first, <coughs> but if you listen carefully, you'll hear the words are underneath the water. That's because, and then McLean says, that's because you're a, <coughs> excuse me, a preacher first and then a fisherman, I told him. If you ask Paul, that, that was his brother, He'll tell you that the words were formed out of water. And most of the struggle in the book was, to, was directed toward Paul and his waywardness, young man who drank too much, who fought all the time, who finally lost his life in a, in a, a back alley uh, brawl. Uh, he says, if you ask Paul, he'll tell you the words were formed out of the water. No, my father said, you're not listening. The water runs over the words. Paul will tell you the same thing. I looked to see where the book was left open, and I knew just enough Greek to recognize logos as the word. I guessed from it and from the argument that I was looking at the first verse of John. McLean concludes, The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over the rocks from the basement of time, and underneath the rocks are the words. See, that's what this father was trying to get across to these sons, that the word is the bedrock truth. That's what we go back to. We don't go on. We go back. In the beginning was the Word. A Word that's older than the rocks, a Word that's older than time. And then, that's the first, the first step, is to, is to recognize that there's a hard core of truth that we can integrate our lives around. And the second thing, as he puts it, uh, is to think about it. Remember, remember how he stated it in the, in the psalm? He speaks the truth in his heart. Literally, David says, into his heart. In other words, he, he, he reads the word 
and then he preaches to himself. He speaks it into And David does that so often in his psalms. He'll remind himself of a truth about God, and then he'll commence to preach, and he'll talk to himself about the truth. What he's doing is thinking through the truth, the implications of the truth, and how it relates to life. That involves moral reflection. See, the, the purpose is not to read through the Bible in one year. The purpose is to read through the Bible and to think through the implications of that truth. And that's what it is. It's true truth for your life and for mine. And then the third thing is that we are to order our behavior consistent with the truth. You remember how David put it? He speaks the truth in his heart and he does what is right. See, that's what integrity is. It's having a moral standard. It's thinking about that standard and the implications of it and then acting in ways that reflect that standard so that there are no loopholes, no fudge factors, no hidden agendas, no dark places reserved for falsehood and misrepresentation, no segment of our life from which the truth is excluded. It means that the same ideals and absolutes govern our lives in all their parts, that no part of our behavior is a lie. We do not behave one way in one setting and a different way in another. We are the same whether at home or away, on the job or on the road, in public where others can observe us or in private where no one can see what we do. I, I heard Howard Hendricks say one time that the definition of integrity is what you do when there's no one around to see what you're doing. That's the real test. You see what he's saying? A life that is utterly consistent with what we believe. Let me give you an illustration from the Old Testament. The guys now on Wednesday morning have been studying through some nobodies, people that you hardly hear anything about. And, and one is a man named Abimelech, who happened to be a Philistine uh, king. Uh, I read this last week comments that little children in Sunday school make. You know, one of them was, David fought the Finkelsteins. Uh, no, it, it was the Philistines that he fought. And uh, David was normally at war with them. <clears throat> in fact, he was the ones who, one who ultimately drove them out of Israel. But at, at the time of Abraham, the, the Philistines were, they occupied much of what's called the Maritime Plain, that area along, uh, along the coast, the Mediterranean coast. And there was a city-state there named Gerar and and this, this fellow, Abimelech, was the king of that Philistine city-state. And Abraham was, he, he was heartbroken over the destruction of Sodom because remember that this wasn't just theory to him. He, he, he had friends that lived in Sodom who, who had died as a result of the destruction of that city. And he, he was, his heart was aching. You know, he'd interceded for these people. He wanted to get away from it. He just didn't want to even be around it. So he goes down from the highlands where he was staying up at, uh, up at Mamre and he goes down to the to Gerar, and, and, you know, you, you, you got to think of Abraham as, as this powerful, uh, wealthy, sheikh. You know, I always think of my Sunday school teacher in a bathrobe when I think of Abraham. No, you know, he, he was a powerful man, wealthy man. He had an army of his own. So he moves in on, on the city of Gerar. Uh, Abimelech sees Sarah. And Sarah was this drop-dead beautiful woman. And so uh, he, he inquires about her to Abraham. Says, Who is this woman? Abraham says, that's my sister. Baloney. She was his wife. He said, well, half lie because she was his half sister, but the, the, the truth is she was his wife. Here's Abraham, the, the man of integrity, who's lying about, about Sarah. So Abimelech takes her into his harem. 
She's available. She's single. So he takes her into his harem. And you have to understand the chaos that could have created because a year before this, God had promised that he was going to give Sarah a child. That's the time she laughed. He had opened her womb by this time. And, and had she gone into Abimelech's uh, harem, uh, humanly speaking, that would have frustrated God's effort to bring a seed into the world, a man who will someday save the world. So we're not, this is not nickels and dimes stuff. This is serious business. Abraham jeopardized the promise because of his stupidity. I mean, what a moron to, to, to give away the possibility to be, to be in the line that would bring, bring the Messiah. See? So Abimelech takes her into his, in, into his harem, and he's, he's getting ready to marry her, and, and he has this dreadful nightmare. I mean, just in the middle of the night, God speaks to him, and he says, you're a dead man. Abimelech says, what did I do? You've got to remember, this is a Philistine. You know, we use the word Philistine for people that are uncouth and uncultured. And he says, what, what did I do? And God says, you've taken somebody else's wife. Bimlech says, I didn't know it. In the integrity of my heart, I did this. And God says, I knew it. I knew you did it in integrity. I know what kind of man you are. And that's why I've, I've kept you from laying a hand on, on Sarah. I protected Sarah and I, and I protected you because you're a man of integrity. You see, that's what here's a pagan who had the solid moral base, at least with respect to marital issues. He would not touch another man's wife. Here's a pagan who had greater integrity than, than the man of God on this, on this occasion. See, men and women of integrity don't mess around with somebody else's spouse. Period. Okay? That's what it means to have integrity. His hardcore of truth. And this person ponders that truth, comes to a conclusion that, that this is the kind of person I want to be. And then by means of prayer, waiting, that truth becomes translated into life. The most difficult and dangerous journey in the world is the drop from our heads to our hearts. The only way we can get the truth out of our heads and into our hearts is through prayer, asking God to make us true to the truth, and it begins to filter out into our lives so that our behavior is integral with what we believe. That's what a person uh, is like when they dwell with God. They begin to develop that sort of integrity. Now, uh, he goes from the general to the specific, and you'll notice there are seven characteristics which, which he delineates of the person who has integrity. I think what he's doing, doing for stating in general, this is what integrity is. And then he shows us what it looks like. Now, bear in mind, there are only seven of these. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just suggestive. He's saying if, if you're a person of integrity, this is the kind of person. Because back again to this word who. It's the kind of person that, that you will be. Number one, if you're a person of integrity, you will not gossip. Gossip is a terrible terrible sin. You know, it's kind of the Christian vice. <clears throat> you know, I don't play around with anybody else's spouse, but boy, do I, do I like to gossip. You know, like the guy says, I don't repeat gossip, so listen very carefully. <laughs> yeah, and you hear the story about the four pastors that got together and they were opening up talking about their sin and one says, oh, my sin is materialism. I'm struggle with that. I'm trying to amass you know, as much money as I can. 
Another pastor says, my problem is pornography. I just can't stay off away from the cyber porn. Another pastor says, well, my uh, problem is pride. Says, I just uh, really want to be noticed and important. And the fourth one, as you can guess, says, well, my problem is gossip. I can hardly wait to get out of here and tell somebody. <laughs> and we laugh, but gossip destroys people. I'm telling you. Carolyn and I work with clergy couples, as you know. It's what I, Idaho Mountain Ministry does. We support people in these little communities who... Uh, men and women who, who pastor these churches, and I can tell you I've seen lives ruined because somebody started gossiping. I've seen churches brought down. I've seen ministries frustrated and, and, and men driven out of ministry because their characters were assassinated. Someone who would never murder anyone would assassinate somebody else's character. Character is what we bring to the plate, to the table. That's what I bring to ministry. And when my character is destroyed, I, I have no ministry. But that's exactly what gossip is. You can destroy a person's reputation in one minute that it's taken him or her a lifetime to develop. Uh, Some of the translations say backbite, and I've only recently come to appreciate what backbite means. Uh, We have a dog who is a flaming feminist. Uh, Seriously, she hates men. She tolerates me, but she hates men. I don't know what happened to her when she was growing up, but she has this thing, you know, she needs men like a fish needs a bicycle, you know. Anyway, uh, whenever a workman comes to our house, we have to lock her up because she'll bite. She's even bitten our sons when they come to our house. But she's a backbiter. She doesn't bite from the front. She waits till they turn their back and then she sneaks around and <laughs> she's got them. And, and having Dolly has helped me to understand what it means to be a backbiter. You know what Jesus said? If you want to bite someone, bite him in the front. If you have something against your brother or sister, you go to your brother, your sister, and you talk directly to them face to face. You don't go around their back and talk to them. You, a person of integrity never talks you know, in a deleterious, detrimental fashion about anyone else. Period. You just don't do it because it's so destructive. Uh, there's, a, there's a Chinese story about a, a philosopher who was trying to teach his students the danger of gossip, and he had them bring a basket of feathers out into the village and dump them out, and the wind blew it all over the place, and he said, now go gather up the feathers, and of course they couldn't. And that's the problem with gossip. There's no place to stop it. It goes from one to the next. Yeah. Terribly, terribly ugly, virulent, evil, does untold harm. God hates it. We've got to deal with it. The man or woman of integrity doesn't gossip, period. Uh, Does his neighbor no wrong? He says, I think since this is in the context of the tongue, he's talking about saying things that that harm others. Whatever you have to say, uh, be uh, be positive. Never intentionally harm another with your words. Uh, Third, does not carry on a reproach against his fellow man, fellow woman, uh, what he's talking about there is listening to gossip. You don't carry it on in the sense that somebody tells you and you, you, you take it in. You lift it up. There's a proverb that says, A wicked man listens to evil lips. That's interesting. Not only if you gossip, you're wicked, according to this proverb. And if you listen to gossip, you're wicked. A person of integrity does not listen to gossip. I have a friend who carries a cell phone around with him all the time. When somebody starts to gossip, 
to him about someone else. He takes out a cell phone. He says, hey, what Jesus said, if you have something against your brother, you're supposed to go directly to your brother. And I happen to have this guy's name in, on my speed dial. If you wait a minute, we'll give him a call and set up an appointment. And you can see him this afternoon and I'll go with you. He said he's had to learn CPR because people begin to sweat and have chest pains, turn white as a sheet. See, but, but, but he's right. Don't listen to that stuff. You can suppress it just like that if you just don't listen to it. I'm sorry I don't listen to gossip. If you have a problem, you take it to that person. Uh, you've all seen the three little monkeys, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. I think what David is saying, we may see lots of evil, but we don't speak it and we don't hear it. Love covers a multitude of sins, John says. You hear about sin, you cover it up. You don't pass it on. Whew, too convicting. Uh, who despises vileness. He doesn't say he despises vile people. It's another mark of a person who has integrity. They honor those who fear the Lord. You know, there, there are still Christians who read People magazine or other magazines about the rich and famous. And, you know, they, they, they read about their godless lives. You know, they spend too much money, drink too much. And, and uh, you know, they just live evil lives. And they, they drink it up. They love it. And this proverb says, that's not the kind of people you want to identify with. If you want to identify with anyone, identify with people who are living holy lives. It doesn't make any difference what their station, position, race, sex is. These are the people that you honor. You know, again, in our work with pastors, I get, I get so angry at some of these congregations because of these God-fearing men and women. Sure, they're not perfect. They make mistakes. But they're doing the best they can do. They're trying to shepherd people faithfully and they're God-honoring, God-fearing people. And people begin to talk about them and decimate their reputations and destroy them. But, and no, see, the person of integrity honors those that fear the Lord, whether they're clergy or lay. It doesn't make any difference who they are. You move toward those who are God-fearing and away from those who have no use for God. Uh, five, he keeps, the person of integrity keeps his or her word, even when it hurts. Uh, most of the translations say he swears to his own heart hurt and doesn't change. Oh, he keeps his word. You say, I'm going to be there, you're there. I'm going to make this call, I'm going to make this call. I'm going to pray for you, then I'll pray for you. I'm going to show up at this time, I'm going to show up at this time. If, the, if you say the check's in the mail, the check better be in the mail. You keep your word, your business, your family. Your personal personal life. Did any of you remember that TV series back in uh, back in '88 called Lonesome Dove? I, one of my favorite TV series. You know, uh, uh, Captain uh, McCall, Woodrow McCall, is is dragging his buddy's body back to Texas. Gus McRae was his sidekick, and he died. And his deathbed wish was that he would be taken back to Texas and be buried. And uh, uh, Captain McCall promised him that he would take, take him back for burial to Texas. And on the way, people, you know, the whole thing was about this dangerous uh, journey that he had to make. And he would meet people along the way, and they would say, what, what are you doing this for? The guy's dead. And McCall would say, I gave my word. That's all there was to it. person of integrity gives their word and they don't change. They swear to their own hurt, even when it hurts to follow through with their word. They do it. 
You know, in that regard, I can't help but think of our marriages because that's where we must be true to the truth, though the decision to do so may entail greater costs than we ever knew. A marriage vow is not a contract that you can break just by paying a, you know, honoring a few bills. It's a special promise to love, cherish, and honor till death do us part. Uh, the words for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and in health take into account the possibility that keeping that promise will be difficult and that circumstances and our spouse's needs may change over time. It doesn't make any difference. You keep your word. As someone has said, love may be blind, but marriage is an eye-opener. You, you begin to discover what people are really like. doesn't matter. You keep your word. So. No fudge factors. No loopholes. No exit clauses. Lewis Mead says, while a normal promise indicates a determination to try, Acknowledging the possibility of failure, marriage commitment before God is a liberation from the possibility of other futures, a choice about how to spend a life that admits no second thoughts. I said, for better or worse, I'm going to stick the landing. Now, we don't have time to go through the last two. I, I think they're fairly straightforward. He doesn't lend his money uh, at, at usury. It's, as I said, it's a strong word, exorbitant. In other words, he doesn't use people to make money. doesn't profit on other people's misfortune. Nothing wrong with, with lending. Nothing wrong with, with uh, expecting some interest. That can be a stewardly thing to do. He's talking about the bite, putting the bite on people and hurting them in order to, to better yourself. Um, the second thing is he doesn't accept a bribe against the innocent. In other words, he doesn't have a price. You can't buy him off. He's not venal. He's, he's honest. That's the point. A woman of integrity, a man of integrity, doesn't gossip. They don't use people. They're faithful. They follow through. They're honest. That's what David is saying. And he could have added many more. This is just a suggestive list. Give us an idea of, of what it means to be a person of integrity. And, and notice this. This is God's promise. He who does these things will never be shaken. I love that promise. It's what I long for. The goal of God God's work in us is to make us stable and tranquil and strong. Any therapist will tell you that, it, that, that, that if you're not a person of integrity, you're going to be restless and unhappy and depressed. It's when you're true to the truth as you know it that you're at rest. You're at peace with yourselves. And you can become a center of peace in the midst of all the chaos, moral chaos around you. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. He ponders the truth into his heart. He's like a tree. I love that figure of a tree. A thousand-year-old oak roots that go down hundreds of feet into the ground and nothing can shake. See? That's the thing about integrity. You feel good about yourself. You feel stable, strong, peaceful. And that's God's promise to those that are true. I have a counselor friend one time who, a woman came in to see me and said, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't have any peace. I'm just restless. And he says, I know what's wrong with you. And she says, what? And he says, you're wicked. She says, what? Yeah, you're wicked. He said, Isaiah says in two places, there is no rest, says my God, to the wicked. 
The reason you're not at rest is because you're wicked. Now that we've established that, let's find out where you're wicked so we can do something about it. That's very non-Rogerian, but it worked in her case. So yeah, if, if, you're, if you're unstable, if you're having a hard time keeping your feet under you, if you're blown about by every... If you're like the chaff, David says, that the wind is blowing away. Somewhere in your life, you and I, if that's true of us, we're wicked. We need to find out what it is. We need to be people of integrity. We need to remind ourselves of the truth and then be true to the truth no matter what it costs us. That kind of person is never shaken. Uh, we were over in Seattle for the big earthquake. Um, we went over. Our son is a high school basketball coach over there, and, and his team was in the Sweet 16 that played in the uh, state tournament. So we went over to watch the games, and uh, we were sitting in the Tacoma Dome when the earthquake hit. And uh, you know, being in California uh, for 20 years almost, we kind of knew what an earthquake was like. Rumble, 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 and the earth was shaking. I looked up to see what was going to fall on us. They had big speakers up there. Unfortunately, there were none up there, but you could see the ceiling ripple like that. I mean, it was surreal. And it, went, it was the longest, hardest shake I've ever been in. And then everything died down, and people kind of looked around at each other, and, and the referee blew the whistle, and they went back to playing basketball. It was all kind of funny, really. <laughs> shows what's really important when you're basketball player. Anyway, uh, as we were going out of the Tacoma Dome, Carolyn says to... Uh, one of the maintenance men who was cordoning off an area where there was a pipe actually broken, the water was dripping down, and she says, uh, you know, did the doing damage the building? He said, oh, no. He said, this building could stand ten times the shock that size. And I doubt it, but I understand what he was saying. It's a, that's, that's a strong building. Found out later, found out later. Now, one of the reasons there was so much damage in Olympia in Seattle is that they're built on mud, built on clay, fill, uh, uh, Tacoma, a geologist friend of mine just told me this morning, is built on, on compacted uh, uh, glacial till. So it's like solid rock. And the reason Tacoma sustained almost no damage, in fact, almost, I don't think they sustained any at all, is, is because we're built on a solid rock. Not, boy, when I read that, I thought, ooh, that's, that's an illustration of something. And, and, you know, it certainly illustrates this, this passage. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, build your house on a rock, and no matter what comes, you won't be shaken. Market goes up and down, you'll be a center of peace in the middle of it, because that's not where your life is tied into. You're integral with God and with His truth. And you're living out of that hard center of truth. That's what it means to be a person of integrity. G.K. Chesterton was asked once, what do you want it out of life? And he said, I want to ring true. And that's my prayer as well. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that we're not there. We have a long way to go before we, we're the kind of person that David describes here. But we're underway. We know that you're at work to will and to do of your good pleasure. And we're trusting you for growth toward godliness. Make us people who are whole in all our parts, true all the way through. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we want to take just a few moments around the Lord's table. We're running a little behind them. Sorry about that. But we'll just want to remind ourselves what the answer is to our failure. We're not men and women of integrity yet. We do fail. 
But there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Every moment is a fresh beginning. you of a, of a picture in the Old Testament. Uh, it's one of my favorite metaphors. <clears throat> had to do with the ceremony that the priest carried out for the cleansing of a leper when a leper was healed. You can go ahead and play if you want. It's okay. Um, when the leper was healed, he would go to the priest and uh, the priest would take two small birds who would sacrifice one and pour its blood into a bowl and he would take the other little bird and he would wrap its wings with string and he would dip it in the blood and then he would cut the string and turn the, the bird loose and it would fly off free. Well, believe me, that's a cut above anything that Richard Bach ever came up with and Jonathan Livingston Seagull because his little seagull flapped his way to God. I mean, it was all self-effort. This is not that at all. This is turning us loose from our sins so we can fly right into the hands of God. What a wonderful picture. And that's what we symbolize when we take this cup. Our Lord takes us bound in our sin, frustrated by our inability to be what we want to be, and we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, and we're set free to fly home to God. What a wonderful picture. Will you reflect upon that as, the, as we pass the bread? Let's take the bread together in remembering his death until he comes. You came not only in spite of our sin, but because of our sin to pay the price for us, a price we could never pay. We thank you from the bottom of our heart. Amen. Let's take the cup together. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His smiling countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you.